You can have a seat as you're sitting down. Tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here today. Also, if there's an empty seat near you, if you could kind of scooch towards the middle. We got people standing at the edges. We're trying to bring out a few more chairs, so that will help. So if you don't mind, just getting a little friendly. Open up your Bible to Mark chapter 6. Also would love for you to follow along in the listening guide that you got when you walked in today. Mark chapter 6. So you remember last week, We read the section about Jesus feeding the 5,000 out of five pieces of bread and two loaves of fish. And this is how that story ends in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Here's our section today. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he had dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, "'Take heart, it is I.'" Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Our daughter Willa is one year old, about 15 months to be exact. I would say 90% of her life, she has woken up at least one time in the middle of the night yelling. 90% of those 90%, uh, Amanda is the one to get up and to comfort her and put her back to bed. Uh, 10% of the time, it's been me. And the 10% that I've done it is almost unbearable. So that shows you how much you need to be praying for, Amanda. So Willa had a doctor's appointment, just one of those routine checkups recently. And she, Amanda brought this up to the doctor. You know, she's done. The doctor's answer was, well, just turn down the monitor and ignore her. <laughs> so we've been doing that. And it's been successful for us. I don't know that it's been that successful for Willa But it has been successful for us. But I feel a little bad because, you know, she doesn't know everything. All she knows is what she knows, which is she wakes up in the middle of the night, frustrated, scared, hungry, whatever her reasoning is. She wakes up in the middle of the night and she's yelling out in her way for mom or dad. And mom or dad is not coming. And she waits, and she screams louder, and she waits, and nothing is happening. She has to think that she inherited from God the worst parents on earth in her mind. But she doesn't know. She doesn't know that we talk to the doctor about it. She doesn't know that actually when she does wake up, we wake up, and we're sad for her. She doesn't know that it's in her best interest that we don't uh, comfort her in the ways that we have been comforting her. She only knows what she knows. And I think about that a lot, about my relationship with God, because I only know what I know. I don't know what he knows. 
In fact, that's what Isaiah chapter 55 says. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. We only know what's on our side of the door. And rarely do we get an opportunity to understand what he's doing on his side of the door. But in Mark chapter 6, we get to see two points of view. We see the disciples' point of view, and we also see what Jesus is doing. So a few things I would love for you to write down in your listening guide. Number one, this is from the disciples' point of view. They are fighting against the elements. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Verse 48, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So they're rowing. The wind is against them. It literally means they're being harassed by the wind. They're fighting the elements. Now what's interesting is in verse 45, it says he made his disciples get into the boat. So in your listening guide, why did Jesus make the disciples get in the boat? It seems very specific. He forced them into the boat, most likely to prevent them from getting caught up in the movement to make him king. John chapter 6 also tells the story of the fish and the loaves. And the people are so overwhelmed by the miracle that Jesus had just done that they wanted to force him to be their king. You remember Rome ruled the world at this time. And so Israel had no true king, but they wanted a true king. It was a real sore spot for them. And so there was a movement among the 5,000 that were fed. Jesus should be our king here and now. And so they literally went to go and force him into Jerusalem, but John chapter 6 says he slipped away from them because that's not the king he was trying to be. And some think that he made the disciples get in the boat so that they didn't also get caught up in that movement because they didn't fully understand exactly what kind of king Jesus wanted to be. And it says in Mark that it was the fourth watch of the night. Again, in your listening guide, Mark adopted the Roman reckoning of time. The Roman watches were from 6 to 9, 9 to midnight, from midnight to 3, and from 3 to 6. Therefore, Jesus appeared to the disciples sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. So this gives us some real sympathy for the disciples. You know, Jesus didn't feed the 5,000 at midnight. He fed them in the evening, maybe even the early evening. So these guys have been rowing that boat, sailing that boat, fighting the elements for hours and hours and hours through the night. There's a strong wind, which meant there were massive waves. Now in Mark chapter 4, if you remember, they have already fought against the wind and waves. They were sailing across the same Sea of Galilee, and water is coming into their boat, and they believe that they're perishing. They believe that they're dying. And you remember, Jesus is asleep at the front of the boat. And so they come to him and wake him up uh, just to let them know him know that they're dying. That's essentially the story. Hey, we just wanted you to know that uh, we're perishing over here. You don't seem to be concerned about it. We just want everybody to have all the facts. We're dying and you're sleeping. So you know that they were probably still scarred from that because this is happening just a few, maybe a few weeks later, a few months later, uh, maybe a year later at most. 
The last time they sailed across, it didn't go well, and the same thing is happening again. They're fighting the elements. Number two, from their point of view, they were afraid. Verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they, were all, they all saw him and were terrified. So when one thing goes wrong for the disciples, everything goes wrong. It is a terrible storm. They're maybe going to die, and now they're seeing ghosts. This is a bad night. It says that they were terrified. In your listening guide, the picture is one of violently shaken men who during the darkness and the storm utter a loud and frantic cry because of their fear that an evil specter is catching up with them intent on doing them harm. They're afraid. And Mark, as he writes this gospel, he writes this account with some unspoken criticism at their fear. He does not think in reflection of all that he knows as he's writing this gospel, probably under the influence of Peter. He doesn't think they should be afraid. There are kinds of fear that are appropriate. If you see a snake in the corner of your house, you can be afraid. If somebody jumps out at you in the middle of the dark, it's okay to be afraid in that moment. That is totally appropriate. Before Amanda and I were married, we lived, I lived in a dilapidated house uh, here in Houston. In fact, it was condemned uh, just a few months after I lived there. And it was at a pretty busy intersection. In the middle of the night, on occasion, I would look out the window and there would be people congregated in our front yard. I don't know what business they had together at 2 a.m. in our front yard, but they, they did. So it was kind of a spooky place, kind of a rundown home, people congregated in the front yard. My roommate, he traveled a lot for business, so there were lots of times that I would leave for college. I commuted to school uh, in the morning and would come home, and he would be out of town, and I was not thinking ahead, so the house would be totally dark, no porch light on anything like that. And it would be creepy when I come home. You know that kind of creepy, like just, it just is kind of on the back of your neck, like you know nothing is wrong, but just feel like something is wrong. And I would come home to this very dark house. Well, what I started doing is I started leaving garden shears uh, just right inside the front door. So I would come home and I would unlock the door. I would crack the door just a little bit so that I could reach into the garden shears. And then I would kick the front door open because probably if there was somebody in there, they would be hiding right behind the front door to get me when I came in. So that if I kicked the door and bang into them, I would know that there was somebody there and then be like manly about it and handle my business. <laughs> so kick the door open, then reach in and flick on the light. But I have my garden shears there for just, you know, just, just in case. Right? I think that that's appropriate kind of fear <laughs> response. There are fears that are wise and actually help you stay alive. But then there are fears that God, in His Word, would criticize. Fears that we have that we should not have. Uh, it's fear when we know better. Like habitual insecurity. That's a fear when we should know better. You think about all the Scripture says about who we are in Christ. Man, it, it, the Bible says so much positive stuff about you. 
And if we believe just even 10% of it, we, just criticism would roll off our back. That need for approval in us we just wouldn't be relevant, even if we just believe 10% of what the Bible says about us. So habitual insecurity, God, in his word, would say that we would need to let that go. That's a fear when we should know better. Uh, conscious anxiety and worry, that's a fear God would ask us to let go. There's some anxiety that we're not conscious about. We wake up in the morning and we're anxious. We go to sleep and we're anxious. We're anxious when everything is fine. That's different than a worry when we know we're worrying. When we know we shouldn't be and we let it remain in our life. Philippians chapter 4 tells us that we shouldn't be anxious about anything in those, in those moments. That fear of loss of control. Some of us are micromanaging our life, micromanaging the people in our lives because we're afraid of being out of control or not being able to manipulate the outcomes of our life. That's a fear that the Bible says we should know better. They were afraid. That, that was from their point of view. Number three, from their point of view, they lack understanding. They don't understand what's going on. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. It says they are utterly astounded. There are some things that shouldn't surprise us. If you pray and you ask God to meet your needs, you ask God for something specific and it happens, you shouldn't be surprised. If you are surprised every time God answers one of your requests, it says that your faith is small. There are some things that shouldn't surprise us. And when our faith is small, like the disciples, we mistake Jesus for other things. Their faith was small. In their minds, even though Jesus had just fed 5,000 plus people out of a young boy's lunchbox, they did not believe that he could walk across the water. So they mistake him for a ghost. Just like you and I, when our faith is small, we mistake his work in our life as coincidence. We mistake his work in our life as just luck or we give credit to a, a person instead of ultimately giving credit to God. Because when our faith is small, we mistake him for other things, just like the disciples. We lack understanding just like them. And number four, from their point of view, they were still having doubts. Verse 52 ends with one little phrase, but their hearts were hardened. In your listening guide, when Mark says that the hearts of these disciples were hardened, this probably means that the obtuseness of the twelve, their inability to draw the necessary conclusions from the miracles of Jesus, was the result of sinful neglect to ponder and meditate on these marvelous works and on the nature of the one who performed them. Their hearts were hardened. They, they hadn't connected the dots of all of Jesus' miracles. When my heart is hardened, it usually manifests itself in three ways. These may not be your three ways, but try these on, see if they fit you. First, I'm stubborn when my heart is hard. I'm stubborn. It's my way. This is what I'm going to do. I don't care what anybody else says. Sometimes I don't even care what God says. I'm going to ignore what He says so I can obey what I say. I'm stubborn. I'm willful. 
It's not God let not my will, but your will be done. It's not your will be done, but my will. Willful. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to do. Or, and this is most prevalent, I'm apathetic. I just don't care. Or I don't care as much as I should. When my heart is hard, I, I know I should be in the scriptures. I know I should. I, I just don't care enough to do it. When my heart is hardened, I know I'm supposed to pray about everything, always. I know I should. I just don't care enough to do it. I'm stubborn. I'm willful. I'm apathetic. Our hearts are hard. I wonder if the disciples, too, were hardened because they viewed that miracle of the fish and loaves as being a miracle for someone else. And maybe in their minds, Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people was about the people. They were the ones who were hungry. Jesus did that miracle for, for them. So when he walked on the water to the disciples, they weren't thinking that Jesus did miracles that benefited them, just other people. I do think it's easier for us to see God at work in someone else than it is to see him at work in our own lives. We notice his grace when he gives grace to someone else. But we don't call it grace when he gives it to us. We call it what we deserve. We notice the small things he does for other people, but we're not looking for small things. We're looking for big things for us. Some of us are doubting today and our hearts are hard because we look around and see, God, you're working in everyone else's life, but you've never done a miracle for me. But the fish and the loaves wasn't about food. It wasn't about a meal. These people out in the wilderness in the story before, they could have survived one day without food. The point of that miracle was a revelation of who Jesus is. That's what it was about. And the disciples missed that. They missed that that miracle was about a statement of Jesus and who he was and what he could do. Sometimes we get so focused on the answer to our prayers, we lose the one who answered them. The need in our life screams so loud, 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 loud. And then we try to equally scream in prayer, God, I need this, I need this, I need this. And then when it comes, we're so obsessed with the the coming of the answer that we lose the one who did the answering somehow. And our hearts remain hardened even though our bellies are full. Here's the point in your listening guide. My point of view is not the point of view. It is a point of view. That's not actually in your listening guide. It is on the screen though. My point of view is not the point of view. It is a point of view. Just like baby Willa does not have all of the perspective We do not have all the perspective. Our facts may not be all the facts. But it feels like that. Some of us are so angry at God this morning. Just angry, frustrated. We are apathetic towards God because of... He didn't do for us what we thought. But we only know what's on our side of the door. Rarely do we get an opportunity to see what he's doing on his side of the door. But in this story, we do. 
so now in your listening guide, when I am fighting against the elements, which is maybe some of us would raise our hand today and say, that's a perfect description of my life right now. I am fighting against the elements. I'm fighting against my elemental husband. I'm fighting against my elemental children. I'm fighting against my elemental boss or job or finances or sickness. I'm fighting against the elements. I'm afraid when I lack understanding and I'm doubting. Jesus is, number one, he is praying. He is praying. It says in verse 46, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus still prays for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Something similar in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not only is Jesus interceding for you, not only is he right now stepping in for you, he's doing it right next to the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's what we all want. We want an advocate. We want somebody when we are in need to step up and speak up for our need. So what might he be praying? John chapter 17 gives us a clue because Jesus prayed for his disciples and not just for those original disciples. Halfway through the prayer, he transitions and even says, I'm not just praying for these, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me because of these. And that's us today. He prays in John chapter 17 that God would keep the disciples in God's name, that their joy would be fulfilled. Isn't that nice to know that while we're fighting against the elements, one of the things that Jesus is praying for us is that our joy would be fulfilled, that we would be kept from the evil one. Satan wouldn't be able to take advantage of us while we struggle, that we'd be sanctified in the truth, that the struggle that we're in is going to turn out for greater godliness in us. Number five, that all the disciples would be one. I can't think of anything more relevant right now in our world than, than being one. So divided, and yet Jesus is praying that we would be one, which for that we need a Jesus-level prayer. Your Mima can pray the heavens down, I'm sure, and she accomplishes a lot in the heavenly realms. But for that kind of miracle, it's nice to know Jesus is the one praying that we would be unified. And finally, that God's love would be in us. These are the kinds of things that he's praying for you right now. You may be fighting against the elements. You may be doubting. Your heart may be hard because you lack understanding. You may be afraid, and Jesus is praying for you. Number two, he's noticing. Verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And what's interesting is we know that this is happening in the middle of the night. It's happening between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's dark outside. And Jesus is a long way away. So he sees them supernaturally. He didn't just look out in the darkness and able to see them. He sees them supernaturally in prayer which is good news for us today because some of us would say, well, there's no way that God would notice me. 
right now. I'm little. I'm insignificant. There's no way that he would notice me. But supernaturally, he notices. In fact, Jesus' teaching tells us that in Matthew chapter 10. He says that God notices even the most insignificant things. Verse 29. Are two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So Jesus says two birds that nobody cares about, two sparrows are sold for less than a penny, half a penny each. And then he says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more of more value than many sparrows. God notices the insignificant, even how many hairs are on your head. Which is easier for some of us than others. It is possible to estimate the number of hairs on your head. I know this from experience because about eight or nine years ago, I guess maybe about ten years ago, I started to notice a phenomenon in the mirror that I was not at all pleased with. And so I'd heard my whole life about the hair club for men. So I went and visited them. Surely they are having success stories because they can pay for all these infomercials. And so I went made an appointment at the hair club for men, showed up. There's a waiting room there, which there's, there's no judgment in the waiting room of the hair club for men. <laughs> if you're just feeling judged right now, you just go there, unless you have a full head of hair, and then that's unfair, and you shouldn't. And so we're just all waiting there, and they call you back, and the guy who does the presenting, he is a success story, and so he's got a nice little head of hair on him, and which I immediately noticed, and You get in there and they give you the whole spiel about kind of what they do and what their services are. And then he takes this wand. It's like an ultrasound wand. And he started rubbing it on the top of my head. And on the TV screen, big screen right there, are all of my hairs magnified. And he starts back here and he's like, see, that's all the good stuff right there. And it's nice and it's thick. And I'm like, I know that's all the good stuff. I want some of the good stuff to be on the top. That's what I need. And he starts waving that over the top of my head. And he sees, you see all these hairs over here on the screen? They're all like, you know, like colorless. And I was like, yeah, I thought maybe I was going gray. He's like, no, those are dead. Those are dead. They'll be gone immediately. They're gone. And so he takes a little picture and he counts the ones in the picture. And they're able to estimate how many hairs that you have on your head. And then at the pace at which you will lose those hairs. But then they will give you their opportunity for just eight thousand dollars they can take some of the hair on your back and put it on your front and if i had had eight thousand dollars in my pocket i would have been like sign me up right now now here's what i'm i don't need i don't need this morning i don't need any of you to come up afterwards and say man i think you look better bald first of all you can't say that if you have a lot of hair Two, I've never once heard another bald man say to me, I think you look great bald because we know, we know we're just making the best of it. So it's not a tremendous comfort to me from Matthew chapter 10 that God knows the number of hairs on my head. I also know the number of hairs on my head. It's zero. But maybe it is a comfort to you because you're rubbing your hands through your head right now. It's like, oh, yeah, this is so nice. You just, you just need to stop and thank God for that. <laughs> that's not, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point isn't about the number of hairs on your head. His point is uh, he notices the things that you don't even notice. You, you don't know when 
one falls out and when one grows back. You don't know that, but he does. That's comforting to me today because I think there's a ton of stuff in my life that he's not noticing. Because if he noticed, then he would fix it. Isn't that what we think? If he noticed, he would change it. If he noticed my relationship with my mom and dad, he'd fix it. If he noticed my relationship with my kids, he would fix it. If he noticed my, 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 my pain and my insecurity and my wound and where I've been hurt, he would fix it. If he noticed my cancer, he would fix it. He would fix it. But I only know what I know. I only know what it's like on my side of the door. But he knows what it's like on his side of the door. And he notices. In fact, he notices more than you. That's what he's doing when you are fighting the elements. When you are afraid. When you are terrified. When you don't have answers. When you're powerless. He is noticing. And then he is doing the impossible. Because he walks to them. That's what it says. He walks to them. He doesn't swim to them. He doesn't go the long way around the shore. He walks to them. Now what's interesting is it says that he meant to pass by them. And Bible scholars, they kind of debate because they don't really understand that. They don't understand if he noticed them, but then he meant to pass by them. What was he doing? What was he thinking? Was he just trying to get to the other side? And so then when they got there to Bethsaida where they were going, he was there and they would believe greater. Was there some, is there some conflict in the wording? I, I like what one Bible commentator said that I read this week. He said, you know, when we define pass by, we mean we want to go unnoticed, that we're ignoring those who pass by. But he said, if you notice in the Old Testament, when that word is used for God, when God passed by, it was always a revelation of who he was. He passed by Moses on Mount Sinai and let all of his glory pass beside this human. Moses couldn't even look at it straight. He had to look at it out of the corner of his eye because if he had looked at it straight on, he would have fell over dead. And when Jesus wants to pass by, it's a revelation of who he is, which totally lines up with the fact that he walks on the water because to the Hebrews, only God could walk on the water. Job chapter nine, verse eight. It says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Chapter 38, verse 16, rhetorical question. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? By walking on the water, Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. I am God in the flesh. He passes by, reveals himself to his disciples. You may say, well, just a moment of honesty. It's a beautiful church service we're having here. It's warm and fuzzy. God is not doing the impossible in my life. God has never healed me from cancer. God has never immediately and miraculously rescued one of my relationships. He's never done some big thing that I could only attribute to him. God is not doing the impossible in my life. What I would like to suggest to you is he is doing more impossible in our lives than we're giving him credit for. Like example, for example, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning you wake up, maybe it's real windy like it's been recently. You get to work, you're getting out of your car, you notice one of your coworkers 
all their papers are blowing in the wind, getting away from them. And you are a Jesus follower. And at some point in your commute, you're just heart aligned with Christ. You say, I want to do your will today and I want to do mine. I want to be filled with the Spirit according to the Scriptures. And that's your heart. So you go and you gather up the papers. And that's it. You hand them back to the person. Then you go about your day. Something that you will forget by the time you get back in your car. You know what's impossible? Is that the Scripture tells us that act right there done because your heart was aligned with Christ, you will receive the reward for that forever and ever and ever and ever. You will receive the benefit of that one momentary act of kindness that you forgot the rest of the day forever. So don't tell me that God is not doing the impossible in your life. He is making the least significant moments of your life count for eternity. And he's also doing the impossible because that suffering that you are suffering right now, you will be rewarded for that if you stay the course. He will bring that full circle and you will not get the answer to how he does that on this side of the door. You won't. There will not be a moment in this lifetime where you wake up and go, oh, now I see exactly what God is doing. But when he breaks down the door and returns from heaven back to earth, outside of Jerusalem, splitting that mountain in two, when that happens, your eyes will know what your heart has believed. And he's going to make this pain count. And it is going to be worth it somehow somehow he is doing the impossible in your life right now and he encourages us when we're fighting and struggling and straining he encourages verse 15 for they all saw him and were terrified but immediately he spoke to them and said take heart It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. It is I. He says, take heart. In John chapter 16, verse 33. When he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Those two things don't go together in our minds. Peace and tribulation, they're mutually exclusive. When tribulation is high, peace is low. And when peace is high, it means tribulation and trouble must be low. But Jesus says they can both be high. You can be experiencing a tremendous amount of tribulation and trouble right now, but your peace can be off the charts or vice versa. Some of you, honestly, have a moment of honesty. You live an incredibly easy life. Compared to most people on planet Earth, you are living the dream. In fact, I would guess, for most of us, the the 20-year-old version of us would say right now that we, we are living out all of our prayer requests that we had when we were 20. If you could go back 
talk to that 20-year-old and they could see the husband that you have and the kids that you have and the job that you have and the neighborhood that you live in and the life you get to leave, that 20-year-old would say, man, God, God, this is everything that I could ever hope and dream. And yet so many of us have so little peace, even though our tribulation is so little. Peace and trouble can go together. Why? Because he says, I have overcome the world. Because he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And I loved, as we finish, that Jesus doesn't condemn them when he gets into the boat. He doesn't really give them a hard time at all. Now, What's interesting to me is we know from verse 45 that he told them to go to Bethsaida and that's where they were headed. But in verse 53, it says they land in Gennesaret. So they didn't land in the place that he wanted them to go. They will eventually get to Bethsaida in a few chapters from now, chapter eight. You know what's in between chapter six and chapter eight when they finally get to Bethsaida? A bunch of miracles more opportunity for them to really comprehend who Jesus is and what he can do and why they should believe. He doesn't condemn them. He gives them second chances. Some of us, we have been so frustrated with God because our point of view has become the point of view and we've been frustrated. Meanwhile, we've been missing all that he's doing on the other side of the door. And instead of condemning us today, Instead of slapping our hand today, he's saying, I'll give you another chance. How many more chances you want? I'll do more miracles in your life. I'll reveal myself more and more. I'll give you my teaching more and more, which is great news. I, I, I feel so much like that father who came to Jesus and his son was in great need. For any of us fathers who have kids, man, we just know if it were one of your kids that were sick, how long would you walk? to get to Jesus and he gets to Jesus and he says about his son and and Jesus says if if you believe your son will be made well and the father says you remember this he says I believe help my unbelief and I think that's where so many of us are today man we believe that he's doing something on the other side of that door we do but then there's a part of us that's like I don't know I I don't know and we're saying today Jesus could just give us more chance could you give us more chances to see you? Could you give us more chances to believe? We believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we're your followers uh, this morning. We just say, man, who is like you? Who is like you? Who is this that wind and wave obey? Who is this that walks on the water? Who is this that feeds thousands? Who is this that offers up his life? Who is this that's resurrected from the dead? Man, we just, we think that you're great today. We think that you're great see what we can't see in Jesus name